The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. In this podcast series, we talk about the intersection of business, policy, and law. My name is Jennifer Ree, and I'm a senior analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering U.S. antitrust litigation and policy. This is the fourth Votes and Verdicts podcast series focused on antitrust issues. And for this one, we did something a little bit different. On January 24th, Bloomberg Intelligence hosted a webinar to discuss antitrust litigation against Apple that was brought by Epic Games over Apple's App Store policies and how Apple is responding to an injunction that was issued by the court in that matter. This podcast is a recording of that webinar. My apologies for any references we made to slides we used in the webinar that aren't available here. For the webinar, we were honored to be joined by Professor Harry First the Charles L. Dennison Professor of Law Emeritus at New York University School of Law. He is also the co-director of the law school's Competition, Innovation, and Information Law Program. From 1999 to 2001, Professor First served as the Chief of the Antitrust Bureau of the Office of the Attorney General of the State of New York. He teaches in the areas of antitrust, regulated industries, international and comparative antitrust, business crime, and innovation policy. He has authored or co-authored numerous antitrust casebooks and scholarly works, and is a well-known and respected figure in the world of antitrust. Joining Professor First are Bloomberg Intelligence Analysts Anurag Rana, Tamlin Basin, and myself. Anurag is a senior analyst covering technology companies, and Tamlin is a senior legal analyst also for Technology Matters. Anurag served as the moderator for the webinar. So with that, please enjoy this Votes and Verdicts podcast. As usual, feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions or comments or would like to discuss this topic in further detail. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Bloomberg Intelligence's uh, webinar that looks at Apple's new uh, app fee structure and some of the other legal battles it's facing right now. Um, I'm very glad that we have uh, Professor Harry First as uh, uh, one of our guests today. Um, he is joined by uh, my colleague Jennifer Ree, as well as Tamlin Basin, and the four of us are going to brainstorm about of what exactly is happening. So we, we have an agenda today, and the agenda is uh, talking a lot about what's happening with the Epic Game and the Apple injection uh, and other antitrust risks. Uh, what could be some of the financial impacts, uh, and then you know, ending with DMA as well as the watch ban options that uh, Apple's facing. So, you know, just a couple of uh, comments about uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. You know, we have a team of uh, over 400 uh, people at this time. A lot of uh, analysts across the world: Singapore, Hong Kong, London, uh, Princeton, New York. 
um, and, and talking a lot about uh, almost everything that's under the, the belt, such as credit, equities, ESG, and it's, it's so, um, you know, important for us to have experts like Jen Rhee, uh, within the group because she helps us to uh, understand a lot of what's happening. And in fact, every time I talk to her, I feel I've learned something. And uh, today we even have a, a, even a bit, you know, I would say a bigger guest that has is an antitrust expert. So it's, this is something that we do fairly often. So, you know, perhaps to start off with laying the ground of what we are talking today, um, let me ask uh, Professor Harry uh, a little bit about the Epic Game versus Apple. Um, what were kind of the terms of injunction issued against Apple uh, now that the, um, uh, you know, lit litigation has concluded? What exactly were the trial courts found finding against Apple? Well, um, of course, we have to set this in um, a general antitrust attack on how both Apple and Google control their app stores. So as you point out, this this part of the litigation uh, was Epic's attack on, we could say Epic litigation, uh, Epic's attack, sorry, Epic's attack on um, Apple um, and um, the way uh, it handles um, the app store. And um, although they, um, they attacked it, number of things two things in particular were important to the litigation one is not allowing um uh, out sort of in-app purchases but out of um off of apple uh onto epic's own website or through its own stores um and um, not being able to communicate to um consumers to those who are using epic games particularly fortnite um that that there were other options available where they could make in-app purchases. Uh, in-app purchases, as I'm sure all of you will tell me, very important to the business model for Epic. Um, and key, I'm sure from Epic's point of view, is the huge commission that Apple takes on everything forever, uh, which is a 30% commission. Um, now, uh, actually, um, Epic lost the antitrust litigation um, in the district court. Uh, and um, also on appeal. What they did win was a claim under California unfair competition law that the anti-steering provision was, an, was unfair competition. In other words, um, not being able to tell consumers or steer them to uh, Epic's alternative um, purchase system and payment system. So that, that is um, where um, Epic won. And the Supreme Court just recently, Apple tried to take that case to the Supreme Court, um, not surprisingly, was unsuccessful. Um, and that's why we are where we are now. Now, the district court uh, had entered an injunction, a very simple injunction, um, that um, was to simply, uh, pro Apple had to stop prohibiting developers from including in their apps any I'll read it, metadata buttons, external links, and so forth um, that could direct consumers to um, purchasing mechanisms other than Apple's in-app purchasing or communicating to customers. So that's the injunction. Apple can no longer do that. And they claim right now that they are actually in compliance with that injunction. So, you know, in terms of the California uh, state laws, what, you know, uh, in terms of the anti-steering stuff, they have done, or you know, they have talked about some remediation there. 
Um, how do you, uh, you know, how do you, I, I guess, what's your judgment on what it's trying to do there? Well, um, Apple is trying, um, Apple has some plausible claims that all the district court said was you, you have to give consumers a choice. Um, and that's it. The, the district court didn't say how to do it or, um, you know, what the consequences were and so forth, just the consumers have to be informed. Um, and Apple pointed out in its papers that it filed, um, and this was just about a week ago, January 16th, they, they said um, the district court judge um, didn't disagree with Apple's business model, that it was entitled to charge for all of the intellectual property, et cetera, et cetera, involved in the App Store. So they said, fine. Um, we're doing that. They 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 can they can um, tell consumers that they can the consumers can make purchases outside of um, you know Apple's system. Uh, they can go to Epic or any developer's system, and that's fine. All they have to do is get approval for what Apple calls entitlement links, um, and and put up a little warning on the on the the mobile device before consumer switches. Um, and they have a picture of the warning, um, which says, um, I'm surprised they don't have a skull and crossbones on the warning. Um, you are about to, you know, I can hear them. It's not voice, but you know, you are about to leave the safe space and God knows what will happen to you out there. Do you agree? Um, so it's, you know, in black and white sort of reminds me of a cigarette, box warning you know but um uh and they say that's you know consumers can then make a choice and uh oh by the way of course we're going to charge continue to charge for um you know what purchases consumers make uh, through other applications and uh, oh by the way since we don't trust you <laughs> um we're going to audit you um all the time and uh you know, so basically, Apple is is viewing the uh, injunction in its narrowest form, addressed to the harm that the judge saw, which was failing to give consumers information so they could make a choice. Said here it is. You know, so I'll go back and uh, you know when when we first heard about the twelve to twenty seven instead of the the fifteen to thirty. I mean, my first gut reaction to Jen was. This is crazy. I mean, this is still too high compared to that. But um, Jen taught me that, you know, they are not contending if the fee was high or not, but they are just saying that they will charge for uh, for, for these services. So, so I guess the biggest question in all of this is, what is the big deal or wh where does this 30% come from? Because I have heard, for example, Amazon Marketplace's charges at that amount or, you know, if they have a platform, they're going to charge some fee. Um, you know, who's to decide whether that's 10% or five or 15 or 30? Well, they're, they're, they're probably upset that um, uh, the gaming industry didn't charge higher, uh, higher cuts because apparently that's where Steve Jobs got the 30% figure. It's not based on anything. I mean, unless you think there are comparable risks in Las Vegas and the App Store. So, um, you know, that's what they charge that, you know, the, the cut 
one whatever, I'm not sure exactly. And this is what um, Judge Gonzalez Rogers, who tried the case, um, this is what she found as one of the findings um, in the trial, that it wasn't based on cost. And in fact, there was evidence presented that the profits on this are enormous over costs, maybe, you know, 70% over costs. Uh, so um, it, it ain't based on anything. Now, the fact that others charge it, they probably wish that Steve Jobs had picked 40 because then they would all charge 40. Um, so these aren't, this is not exactly your competitive market that your duopolist, Google, also charges 30%. Um, and, um, you know, on the other hand, what is a competitive price? Um, I, I, I'll put that out to the business people on this call. I mean, I'll, I'll just throw in here, Anurag, that the question came up internally in Bloomberg Intelligence when all of these decisions were coming down as to why is Epic so upset about this? Why is Tim Sweeney on what was then Twitter and now is X saying this is awful? And this is part of the reason, because even though the judge said the 30% fee is really not based in anything and Apple didn't present evidence that that was really the cost of all the security and protection and IP that, that goes into its system, um, they hadn't justified that. And in fact, she said that its ability to continue to charge that fee was from its market power. She didn't find that it had monopoly power, but she did find that it had some market power. And, and really, probably, you know, Epic is left with Apple's continued ability to charge these high fees. Now, not, not that a judge is going to regulate price. That's not really what's going to happen in antitrust. Um, and there was an expert for, for Epic that did some calculations and thought that around a 15 or 16 percent fee might be competitive. There's some findings that a 12 percent fee might be at a, you know, at, at a loss. Um, so the, that range is sort of bandied around a little bit as to what that competitive fee might be. But, you know, Apple sort of, as we all discussed after you heard about that 12 percent and 27 percent, and, and I was questioned by by our boss, as a matter of fact, in Bloomberg Intelligence, how can they do this? I kind of said, look, I don't, I went back and read the injunction. I went back and looked at the decision. I don't really think Apple doing this, it's, 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 it's sort of technically aligned with what it was told it had to do. And the judge didn't say you, you have to bring your fees down. But on the other hand, it seems really reckless to me as we put in our title to this webinar because really it doesn't allow for a cheaper option. And that, that was the whole point. You know, are there any old cases going back to physical stores, you know, whether that's Walmart using their, um, you know, shelf space or Visa and MasterCard forcing people to use their network to process transactions. Is, is, is there any other uh, precedent that uh, will go back and say that, okay, if you're going to use my platform, you're going to give me some fee for it. And, you know, this is kind of the range of the fee that uh, I'm going to charge you for it. Well, I, you know, it's a great question. I, I think at the heart of a lot of this litigation, at least on the private side, um, is motivated by the feeling that the plaintiffs are just paying too damn much. Um, now, in the uh, payments litigation, what they did have was fees charged in other countries and how things were done in other countries. So you did have sort of a yardstick approach. So you could look at Canada and see how things were managed. You know, if you're a Visa fan, you know this probably better than I do. But, um, you know, 
um, fees for interchange are much different in other countries. Uh, we have I mean, we have this problem in a lot of industries. When you know, so when it comes to any, and frankly, here's where the the patent part comes in. Uh, in patent cases, people litigate all the time over whether the fees in licensing cases are reasonable uh, because lots of licensing agreements don't set them out. So they bring in experts. Um, and, um, you know, as we're talking about what um, what the fees are that Apple's charging, uh, I think of Qualcomm's fees, um, which as a percentage basis are not as high, but which um, handset makers uh, feel are exorbitant for what Qualcomm provides in in your current handset uh but they've got a chokehold and they've been you know <laughs> litigation that's brought against qualcomm always brings up these fees the, the interesting legal aspect from an antitrust point of view is that high prices are not a violation of the antitrust laws they may be an antitrust harm they may show the party has monopoly power but they're not directly um, a violation. And the reason why courts and commentators, except frankly for a few like me, um, want to stay away from this is they say, we don't want to become, we don't want to be like a public utility commission. We don't want to regulate rates. Um, and um, both um, Judge Gonzalez Rogers um, and uh, the judge in the Google case now has said, I don't want to micromanage this industry. And, you know, I don't want to sit and say, okay, 24% might be okay, but not 27. Um, so I'm not going to do that. On the other hand, it's actually not so impossible if they wanted to. Now, if the judge wanted to stretch this injunction and say to wipe out the effects over time of this um, not being able to make in-app you know, purchases outside of Apple, um, we've got to do something, and this isn't going to do it. Um, just putting, you know, saying, okay, warning, warning, you can make it, and then making an uneconomic uh, approach to it so that developers are going to say, is this worth it setting up? Um, you know, so the judge could take an aggressive view of this. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I have my guess, but I really don't know whether she will, but... Um, you know, I assume Epic is going to come back and say, you know, this is not a cure for, you know, a long running violation. Um, it's it's not going to be effective compliance. But, you know, judges don't want to regulate rates. So that's a very good point that you brought up. And again, I, I was surprised when uh, Jen once told me that uh, they don't really regulate prices. Um, and in, in that particular case, then what does what options does Epic have? If they're going to say, you got to pay me 12 to 27, you got to figure out a way or, you know, go find uh, another platform to sell your product. Uh, well, you should, you should have the lawyers for Epic come on and ask what they're <laughs> I assume they're going to push and say this is this is not compliance um, and um, probably wish they had brought suit for damages, treble damages instead of, you know, just an injunction. I don't know. This is a, you know, it's a conundrum and it's a pro look, remedies a problem in a lot of antitrust cases. They're not unique. And um, as a guidance, um, the judge in the Google case is going to be faced with this shortly um, and is already 
um, you know, saying that after we go through the the final motions, literally and physically, um, from Google to overturn the jury verdict, we're then going to then going to have uh, some sort of proceeding to try to figure out what the remedy is going to be. Now, uh, I, you sort of get from that that the judge, that the kind of, oh, yes, this is it, fine, we don't have to talk about it anymore, is not what that judge has in mind. Um, so, you know, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess we'll see what the pushback is from Epic, but I would expect them to push back pretty strongly that this is not effective compliance and maybe with studies to show that this kind of warning you know people aren't going to switch They've yeah I, i'll go back you know probably 15 20 years and i, I remember the fight between ios and uh, or i guess macintosh and windows at that point and part of apple's argument was you know my product is very expensive because i'm not opening it up to malware and all that other things it's a closed system this is how i run it and I don't mind losing market share, but I want users to have the most, I guess, safest experience possible, but I'm gonna charge you a premium for it. And and that has been Apple's business model since then. So this opening up iOS outside is, is kind of contrary to the ethos of the company. Um, you know, do people take that into account that, uh, you know, they are not, I, I guess, uh, unlike Google, selling user information? And, you know, there, there's a lot of things that go into the Apple ecosystem that's fundamentally different than an open ecosystem. Well, you know, people, um, you know, when, when, when I get involved in these discussions, I think, do I understand all of this? Um, so, and do, do users understand all of the extent of, whatever these protections are supposed to be, maybe in some general sense, and that may lead them not to switch. So, um, and particularly if it's not worth it to them, you know, you use the, the original bargain, Steve Jobs bargain was, you know, I'm going to supercharge you, but you're going to get, you know, a, a different sort of very integrated, seamless system. Um, you know, as opposed to uh, a clone, you know, a less expensive PC, at least you could see the bargain. But here, it's hard to even see what the bargain's going to be from a consumer's point of view. Why Why would you switch? And it doesn't sound like it's going to save you anything. So, so uh, you know, they're making them an offer that they can refuse. Yeah, and it, it, it sort of blocks out small developers, too, from even being able to provide options because the limitation that Apple's putting is that the payment outside the app store has to be made in a website owned by the developer or managed and controlled by the developer. And there are probably just loads of small sort of mom and pop developers out there that aren't going to want the costs um, or, or have the resources to oh, run right. and manage their own website and do this and, you know, prevent some third party coming in and providing a hub um, on the, on the web. And so it, it also really limits the extent to which users actually have that choice and developers have a choice. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Hey, one, of the, one of the things I've noted again, I, you know, in just studying interchange over the past 20 years is even, you know, go back 30, 40 years, I think interchange was as north as 7% in those days. Now it's come down to somewhere around 2% for, for processing. 
you know, have you, do you have an idea of what have been the forces other than the merchants just getting stronger and stronger? And in this case, it doesn't look like the the overall population is going to be, you know, I guess that powerful that they can depress this 15 to 30 percent uh, commission structure that they have to, you know, let's say half of that. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to a point as to where it finally ends up in. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, what you're describing is interesting. So there's a whole maybe ecosystem around interchange where you have independent companies who provide processing services. Um, and, and you have, I guess on the, the Visa and MasterCard side, the, the change in ownership from cooperative ownership to a separate company, um, a lot of market forces and, um, a lot of money. I mean, there's a lot of money in this industry, as you know, but also money changed hands, um, you know, in antitrust cases. Um, I I had a research assistant a uh, number of years ago who I think has spent his whole professional life um, doing these on the plaintiff side, uh, these uh, Visa MasterCard cases and been very successful at it. And um, on behalf of his clients, and he had very big clients. So, um, so I don't know. It's interesting to think that you know, are there more epics? I, I don't. I I don't know. I mean, market forces are important, uh, but you know, they need a little dynamite here. <laughs> and you know, yeah, as and I... you know, Anurag, I also what I think about a lot, and this is it's really early. This is a way down the road thing. But you know, there's there was testimony and discussion and trial as to how easy it is to switch between Android and iOS, how often people actually do that. And what I wonder is if things change more for Google Android than they do for iOS, given the jury verdict against Google, down the road, are we actually, and, and let's say it is cheaper, it actually becomes cheaper because of competition for consumers on an Android to buy an app or that make the in-app purchase, is that, going to put downward pressure on the that's but so i wonder that in the in the video game market right and, um multi-platformed and subscription video games um so I, I was always skeptical of the switching oh yeah i'll, I'll throw over my my iphone uh you know for an android iphone i don't want to talk about the snobbishness of iPhone users, but you know, uh, that they're really going to do that because they can make those, their kids can buy a sword in app a little less expensively. I, it just didn't seem to me to scan. Um, but, um, but I wonder with, uh, multi-platform video game subscriptions. And one of the things that I'm actually not clear about in the compliance and is the the fee for subscriptions so um as gaming does move to subscriptions there's a provision that says something about 12 percent for subscriptions forever um which is you know puts the magazine industry to shame um but i wonder i couldn't tell whether that was just it was in the 27 and 12 part but it didn't seem to be limited to small users. I, I couldn't quite figure that out. Um, and it seems to me that as that business model changes, um, 
and it's it's gaming that's a that's a the real money behind a lot of this problem and issue uh whether that may be the market force because that might lead you know people who love these games to say you know give me an android phone because you're making me take a subscription out of my allowance and um <laughs> it's a lot less on you know if i subscribe on an android phone so so i don't know i, I just that yeah, was I, the question i wondered about so i think my view is people who buy thousand dollar phones are not sensitive to a few you know dollars of i mean but that's I mean, but but again, philosophically, this is going to go on for a while. And, you know, part of, again, as I said, I completely agreed with Jen when this thing came out that this seems a bit odd. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll take the counter argument to it is if I look at Apple's business model, they have, let's say, about 400 billion in revenue right now. Out of that, you know, over three, 300 or so comes from products, um, you know, sell stuff that they sell. And their total total operating margin is somewhere around 30%. That is well below what Visa and MasterCard at around 50% is. So if, if I was Apple, I would argue that I am, you know, my products are the ones that are, let's say 300 billion in size, and I'm making services, which is all sorts of different things, you know, iCloud and AppleCare, and, and we'll talk about the Google fee, um, and all the other things that go into it is, you know, a portion of it so i'm subsidizing my products which i don't think is true but you know but but, but does that argument not hold true that as a whole the apple's operating margins are nowhere close to industry high uh, their dollar amount is big just because the size of the company well except in the app store the margins are somewhere between 70 and 80 percent it was determined through the in the trial no, that's fair. Again, again, I'm talking about the whole ecosystem when I would look at the products itself um, and, you know, all the other things that they put into it. So I, I guess my question is, to whom are they making this argument? I mean, this is not, it's not a legal argument. It's not an antitrust argument. It's an argument to investors. It's an argument. I, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. The, for me, the argument would be whoever wants to, I mean, if somebody takes this in front of a judge and say these fees are egregious, um, and, you know, that's that's the picture I would paint, that I, if I look at um, other platforms or other ecosystems, uh, this to me, you know, if as, as an Apple, again, uh, Apple speaking in this case, not me, um, this is fair because my total margin structure is still much lower than what uh, the rest of the world is is, is, is enjoying. Yeah, I, it, it's hard for me to see the legal context in which that argument gets made because usually attacks are, you know, by product markets. So the fact, I mean, either you're making money or not making money or it's above cost or not, the fact that you're making. And, and in the end, you mean this $2 trillion company is going to come in and say, oh, poor me? <laughs> I mean, well, I, I don't, I don't know. You know, in a micro sense, they made that argument in the Epic trial, just just as it applies to gaming apps, right? And and you know, they said, well, this is what everybody else is charging, and and it it, it still didn't really matter. The judge said, no, you haven't justified you haven't justified your fees, and we think those fees really come from your market power and not because of the value, not because of the value you provide. So they it didn't really work for them making that argument in that matter. Uh, and Professor Harry, it's three trillion now. So, 
Oh, three trillion. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yes, that's right. I, you know, I'm sorry. I looked at last year's figures. Yeah. No, no, I'm just, I'm just taking a joke out of it. Let, let's switch to the impact of the DOJ lawsuits. Now, there's, a, we, we have heard there's a potential lawsuits uh, that's going to be brought up by the Department of Justice. We also have the DOJ's ongoing litigation against Google over the alleged monopolization of search and the search advertising markets. And this is something that we'd love to hear your opinion on because. It's rumored, because we don't have the exact numbers, that Google pays Apple somewhere around 15 to 20 billion. Some, it's, a, it's a big amount. I, you know, we, we don't, I don't have the right number, but imagine that 15 to 20 billion falls straight to the bottom line. If you want to talk margins, it, this has probably, I, I don't know, it has it, it, full margins. There is, there is no cost to that stuff. So that's a very big fee. I would love to get your opinion on what happens uh, next. <laughs> so, um... I sometimes say that the God of antitrust is the God of irony. So here you're <laughs> suing, you're suing Google for making these huge payments for default. So if the judge finds, which I think the judge is going to find Me too. my sense of it, um, that this, that Google has a, a monopoly in search, that search is a product market and Google has monopoly power in it. And that uh, paying for default is monopolizing conduct and so the the most obvious remedy is they can't do that anymore so they've just saved google um i don't know the the figure that came out total it's not just apple was what, what 26 billion dollars in one year i mean google are they are they saying to their antitrust lawyers yes let's lose this case um because we're going to you know now we'll still People, you know, we're 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 embedded on everyone's phones, but now we don't have to pay for it anymore. Thank you. And Apple, who they just as soon vanquish if they could, says, "Oh crap, we're not the defendants, but we don't get the money anymore." And you know, um, what are we going to do? Banish the Google search bar from no, and people will just download it anyway. Oh, we love antitrust, so. Um, I think that's sort of one of the ironies of what may turn out to be the remedy in, in the litigation. Now, there'll probably be other things, but I do think that the, um, the plaintiff justice department and the states in the government's case are going to win. And there's a, there is a companion case too, brought by 36, 48 states. I forget how many, 38, maybe, um, that's led by Colorado. Uh, that's a little broader, and um, we'll see how that one goes because it involves their search advertising tool as well. Um, so um, there's still a there's still a distance to go, and there's still some open, important open legal questions that the judge left when um, Google had filed a motion for summary judgment, which the court denied, but left open some questions that the judge had, you know, particularly about what the but-for world might have looked like had their, had this, you know, they not paid for default. Yeah, I, I have a question about that. And I'll have to, I have to say the DOJ made a believer of me in this case, because I, I recall when the complaint was first filed, in my mind, I thought, well, this isn't true foreclosure, because 
Google's not really doing anything technically or contractually that prevents users from changing their default. But then after listening to some of trial and reading some trial transcripts, I, I really changed my mind because I felt like there was pretty compelling evidence about how sticky default is. And, and to the extent it's sticky, then it becomes foreclosure and, and rivals are being foreclosed. And that's a pretty straightforward and old antitrust claim. One of the simpler ones, I think. So yeah. I also think that the DOJ is going to win. But one of the questions I had was whether or not, you know, there was testimony in the trial about the fact that but having been the default search for so long, Google is better because it was able to collect so much data and get so educated from all the searches being done. And that's why the others haven't been able to improve because they need to improve by having more searches done using that search engine. And so one of the remedies I thought could be possible here is some forced sharing of that massive collection of data that Google's achieved over the years by being the default search. Do you see that as a possibility, Professor? Um. Well, I, what, what I'm, so I'm uncertain about either what the Justice Department wants, um, or of course what a judge would order. Um, sharing um, is a difficult concept from nursery school on. Uh, so, um, and sharing implies also continued supervision. Uh, so there's going to be a reluctance for that. I'm not sure Justice Department is going to ask for that. And there presumably are technical issues as well. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I don't know. Um, and there is the problem with all these cases where, you know, the firm acquires and retains monopoly power through, consumer behavior that doesn't get broken simply by saying, oh, my God, that's how you got it. Um, that's the, you know, that's power of default. So um, so giving consumers a choice doesn't mean consumers will choose the other. Um, and I think that's been the, the result in Europe that went through a very similar case to the Justice Department's case. Um, and, you know, choice screens and so forth have not been shown to be all that effective so it's a bit of a dilemma and I, don't, I don't know um what they have in mind and you're right sharing data um would sort of recognize the um there's an underlying paradox in the case because if the idea is you need to get more and more um searches to get scale and more and more is better and better so why do we want two search engines? Um, so um, I'm not sure how justice is going to deal with this and re remedy is going to be big issues in, in all of these cases. I mean, there's no doubt the most straightforward and simple remedy for exclusive agreements that are illegal is to get rid of the exclusive agreements. Yeah, that's, yeah. So, you know, no more agreements. You know, right. there, there are a lot of that's why contractual cases are the easiest to bring. If the mm -hmm. contracts are the restraints of trade, you just say you can't have these contracts anymore. Um, so that's true, but maybe not effective. Right. Right. So just, I guess we should talk on our for a few minutes about this potential DOJ lawsuit against Apple. And then we can move on to, you know, some of your, your discussion on, on, on what, what Apple can do about all this from the business side. 
Um, so we've seen the news about the lawsuit, this possible lawsuit. I suspect it's going to get filed. I mean, we know the DOJ has been investigating Apple for a long time now and focused on Google first. And those cases are well underway at this point. So um, I've seen news talk about iMessage. I've seen them talk about um ties between hardware and software. I mean, what what kind of allegations do you think would be in a lawsuit that the DOJ yeah. might? Well, um, I, I'm I'm obviously I'm not sure. Um, I'm I'm always a little skeptical about whether these cases are actually going to go. But look, they you know they did file it. DC filed against Amazon after mm -hmm. you know threatening forever. I would. Um, yesterday, I went to look for news articles about the Justice Department's potential suit, uh, you know, against um, Apple, and I went to the Wall Street Journal, so I came up with a story, and then I read the date on the story, so it was, it was a year ago. Um, so, uh, but, you know, they, they better file now, because who knows right. what's going to be. Um, now... And thinking about it a little further, it seems to me they will not, it will not involve um, the App Store, um, simply because they haven't done it in the, in, in the Google litigation. They've gone other, after other aspects um, of Google's business, but not the App Store. And, you know, you can make a legitimate claim that private parties are, are involved with that, and um, as are the states. Um, and... Um, we can put our resources elsewhere and it, it muddles the competition stuff because we're not doing that for Google. So, so what will they do? I think a lot of the stuff is going to involve some kind of interoperability where they, they disadvantage firms that need to work with Apple, Apple devices. Um, now, you know, what that's, you know, what products that that's going to be, I don't know. I, I mean, I saw a mention of Tile and the tracking devices. Um, and, you know, the, those cases, frankly, are not all that easy. Strike that. They're actually hard <laughs> um, in today's legal environment to win those cases on monopoly grounds. But maybe they've got um, some contractual stuff that they can go after. So, so I don't know. I, I think as a generality, it's going to be disadvantaging um, competing products that need to interact with the um, Apple ecosystem in some way, whether it's the watch or, um, you know, the iPhone or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think about it all the time in terms of the Microsoft case. I, I try to figure out how a case could be brought that's similar to that one. And it really, I, I don't, I can't come up with one because they were unsuccessful in attempt to monopolize a browser market, right? They were successful in maintaining- Right, but but on sort of silly technical grounds. I mean, right. yes, they were unsuccessful. Uh, I mean, leveraging a leveraging theory into another market, that's the problem with the tracker thing, right. as you point out. But the reason, the attempt is a different reason for not being successful and ultimately didn't matter in the case. But, but the problem of, which is really a problem of platforms and what, you know, is commonly referred to as ecosystems, but is not a legal term, which are complements or adjacent markets, which is if you don't have, if you're not going to get monopoly in that other market or you don't have it, it's not 
a monopolization offense. The courts really read those out right. in the United States, not in Europe, but the United States. And, um, you know, th that that's a roadblock for, you know, a lot of these cases where Apple doesn't have a monopoly in that complementary product, but all of it put together keeps everyone in the Apple ecosystem. Yeah. All right, Honor, actually, we move to the next slide. And um... yeah, let's, uh, you know, let me make a couple of comments on what our research thinks going to happen. My colleague Mandeep published a, a note on it about what could happen in the Google and the Apple uh, App Store. And um, we did some math around where it could lead financially. So, you know, we, we are kind of in uh, agreement that the fees are going to go down. I mean, it's, it's, it is too, it's higher than other marketplaces. Um, it, you know, let's say you get a 10, 12 percent uh, reduction in the way they are doing things. Um, I mean, what it could do is, you know, in our next slide, we show, for example, um, consensus right now has Apple App Store to be about 20, 21 billion in, in sales. So if you look at a 10 percent compression, that's about a two billion dollar hit to the uh, to the revenue line, and about let's say if you you know take that down to twenty percent, that's about four billion. So two to four billion, which is not a small amount, but for Apple with four hundred billion in sales, it's still one percentage points. But it does you know it have have an impact on one particular way they do business, um, and I'd love to get Professor Harry's uh, opinion on it. Uh, there is no shortage of avenue for them to make money right now. What one area they have not touched on is in-app advertising or advertising, you know, targeting you and me at the same time. That's something that they have philosophically stayed away from, but that's a trillion dollar market. I mean, if they want, they can go out and, you know, if they lose, let's say out of this 20 billion, let's say for the mm -hmm. sake of argument, say they lose $10 billion in high margin fee. This is a 75% operating margin business. Let's again, assume that they can go out and say, you know what, I'm going to use your data to sell stuff back to you, and I'm going to take market share away from Facebook and Google and others. They can do that. And it, I mean, it'll take a few years, but that has been against their philosophy to sell things. So, you know, what's, I mean, but, but I mean, if they do that, that obviously harms their customer and the, the trust that they have built in. But, you know, what would courts or, or somebody in the legal profession say to that, that it's actually harming the consumer in the end? Well, um, it's hard for antitrust people to say that more competition is bad. Um, and, you know, it strikes me that's that's the scenario you're saying. If they're going to compete with uh, Google and Facebook for as a landing spot for advertisers, that means that advertising rates should go down. Um, which should in some way redound to consumer benefit. Now, the fact that your data are being used, um, you know, means that um, once again, you are paying in a different way. Um, you know, the old, I mean, it's, it's the old dilemma. If, if it's free, you're paying. Um, so, um, you know, whether in the end they would, I mean, I assume it's a business proposition for them, whether that so changes the way consumers perceive Apple products that um, that consumers would, you know, be more willing to buy the Android phone or buy, you know, PC or so forth. So, but from 
just from an antitrust point of view, having them enter the advertising market is a plus. Fair point. Um, let's now quickly jump to Tamlin with a lot of work that he has done on the um, on on what's happening in Europe and all the different cases that that he follows. And, and let me pass uh, to you, Tamlin. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Anurag. So I'm going to um, briefly talk about the Digital Markets Act, and this is a broad, sweeping competition package that's really intended to curb sort of the market power of of large tech platforms especially those that have been identified as gatekeepers by the European Commission. Now, many of the rules contained in the DMA are, are based, at least in large part, on, on past competition cases that were brought by European regulators. And this does include an ongoing investigation against uh, Apple's App Store policies. Um, this investigation began back in 2020 um, at the urging of Spotify. Now, again, the DMA is really far-reaching, so I'm really just going to focus on, on sort of those App Store um, impacts. So, so I think it's instructive to really look at the DMA versus the injunction that came out of the Epic litigation that Professor First um, went over. So, so first of all, both the injunction and the DMA do are going to prohibit anti-steering or prohibit Apple's sort of policies against um, a developer reaching out consumers, uh, begins communicating with consumers about offers outside of the app. Um, where the DMA goes further is it's going to allow users to download apps outside of the App Store, so side-loading, side um, which is definitely something that Apple certainly has pushed back on in the past. Um, however, I think it's it's very important to point out that what DMA does not prohibit, which is, which is Apple or Google or anybody to impose a service fee on third-party payment systems. So what that means is if in Europe, Apple, Google sort of adopt a similar 2712 policy, that's not necessarily prohibited um, by the DMA. Um, now, now, a little bit about timing is that um, the DMA takes effect March 7th. And prior to that, these gatekeepers are supposed to meet with um, the regulators and sort of outline how they intend to comply with this. I think there were, there were news reports recently that Apple has not um, done that yet, um, but we do think it's going to do that in the next few weeks. Um, from March 7th, the European Commission is going to be directly in charge of enforcing the DMA, um, and I think from there we might see whether or not um, some investigations develop. Now, if you go back to the, um, there's no prohibition on service fees, but I think what's important to note is that there is this, this um, requirement that access to app stores be fair, reasonable, and non-compliance. And Professor First sort of hinted at that standard um, as it's applied in patent cases. In patent cases, brand is, is sort of what is applied to the licensing of standard essential patents. It's, it's very, very difficult to <laughs> determine what brand is. It, it's even more difficult to reach an agreement on what brand is. Where I think these, where we might see things going in Europe is I think Apple, Google, these parties are going to roll out with their DMA compliance in the next few weeks. I think regulators are going to look very closely at how these app store policies, at whether or not there is fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory access to the app stores. And, and I think if a regulator thinks they're 
you know, it, it's either clearly not Fran or, or maybe even just thinks there might be some wiggle room there and to sort of, you know, try to set some precedent, we may see some investigations develop leading to, I think, litigation um, under the DMA. So I, I think there is a possibility, especially in Europe, which I think is a little bit less squeamish than, than um, judges in the U.S. about potentially setting a FRAND rate. I, I think we could see litigation going that way where, where regulators are really forced to um, weigh all of the evidence and, and try to reach a determination over whether a, 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 these um, a servicing fees are fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. You know, that said, that's really going to take I think um, quite some time to develop. So again, first of all, you're going to have to have compliance, then you're going to have to have the regulators conducting these, these really thorough investigations, and then it is going to go to the courts. But I think this is where we might see sort of diverging paths in Europe and the US is that there is this FRAND requirement under the DMA, and, and I think it's, it's definitely going to be very interesting to see how that develops. Tamlin, can I just ask you a question as to Who's going to do the enforcement in the European Commission on Fran? Yeah, well, well, the European Commission does have an a, uh, investigator, investigatory branch. They did give themselves direct power under the DMA. They, they didn't sort of want it to be. Um, I think what they learned with a lot of their long um, litigations, as they were recently trying to enforce competition rules, is that it, it, it went on forever and ever. So what they tried to do is give, I'm not going to say bright line rules, but sort of more clear rules under the DMA, and then they are directly going to have a division within the European Commission that's going to try and enforce that. That said, there, there is the requirement that it's going to go to the courts to determine whether or not the enforcement was in line with the regulation. So, so it's not a, um, you know, a the European Commission isn't, doesn't have carte blanche to impose its will on it. It is going to be constrained by judicial interpretation of the Digital Markets Act. But the European Commission is going to have um, first bite out of that. I, I don't think it's going to be the um, competition, the vestiger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think. Um, yeah, because referring yeah, yeah. to the regulator in yeah, yeah, yeah. is a is a difficult term. I, I've found. Yeah. You know, particularly if it's not um, a competition, DG Comp, um, and um, you know, I, I, uh, my, I mean, my feeling is this is still going to be a slow slog because. Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely definitely going to be a slow slog, and and again, we're we're just we're not even at the time when the DMA takes effect. That that's not till March seventh, and from there, I do think things are going to develop slowly. I, I think. Um, the European Commission, at least when the, the the rules were being drafted, they had an idea of where they wanted it to go. But I think if, if you even look back to how GDPR was rolled out and enforced, it, it took really four to five years until you really started to see even the first opinions by regulators, and those have not yet made it through sort of the European court system. So I do think we're years and years away from potential friend determinations. But if, if you squint, it does look like that might be where things are headed here in Europe. Yeah. In the meantime, the, the part of the reason, for the, well, among the many reasons for the DMA was that the abuse of dominance investigations um, and challenges took so long. Um, and now you have these somewhat vague aspects of the DMA that are going to take just as long. Um, yeah, some of it's clear, but then you've got these, these more subjective brand, you know, issues 
And in the meantime, it's going to take another couple of years and the, the rates that are being charged are still going to be charged. Thanks, Tamlin. Um, uh, just one final question to both of you, uh, Professor Harry and Jen. You know, a year from now, when we sit down and, and pick up this discussion again, do you think <laughs> Do you think Apple's going to be in a, you know, in a, in a better spot than where it is right now, or do you think things are going to be very difficult for them over the next 12 months? Well, I don't think they're going to be in a better spot, but I, I'm not sure how much worse it's going to be. I guess that's, um, I wonder if where they are right now is going to make all that much difference to the App Store unless the judge doesn't find, um, you know, Apple's, compliance adequate. Um, whatever the judge finds, I assume the parties are going to appeal uh, to the Ninth Circuit. Mm -hmm. So there's time. Um, some Who is it who said time is money? I mean, time is money here. Um, I'm listening to Tamlin, I would think, geez, if it's going to take five years to decide whether our fees are franned, um, let's not set them too low. Because, you know, whatever we set them at, the Europeans are going to find they're too high. So if we can collect them for five years, let's do it. I don't know if that's going to be a strategy or so, um, you know, it's this is a long game. And we always hope that antitrust or whatever tool we pick will be fast. It won't be. The thing is to not drop the ball um, and, um, you know, um, it's hard for me to predict whether the ball's going to drop uh, in the future um, if this litig even if litigation is filed um, in the current Biden administration. Yeah, and you know, Honor, I've given all of that, and I totally agree with that. I think you know the single thing in the next twelve months that maybe. Uh, could have some impact on Apple that's negative from a business perspective is the, the case in which it's not even a defendant that we talked about, the, the DOJ versus Google search. Because if those payments stop, that's, as you mentioned, the 20 billion or whatever it is, it's a pretty big hit. And that's, you know, that's something that could happen that Apple has no, there's nothing Apple can really do about that. Um, but right in terms of the, these challenges directly to Apple and its fees and its app store and its other businesses, I, I don't, I, I just don't think anything, I think status quo in the next 12 months. Now, this is great. This has been a very good discussion uh, from all of uh, you. Thank you so much. And uh, we, we hope to, to have this, uh, you know, if we get new information on any of the cases. Um, so thanks, thanks everybody and, uh, and have a good day. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. 
More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.